How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then uh, we will open in prayer. I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening in order to study your word. Your word is a, the light that in which we see all other light. It is through your revelation that we are able to accurately understand and interpret the details of life around us and to be able to put everything in its right perspective and to have the right scale of priorities. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we would uh, become greater convinced of its accuracy, its veracity, and a greater understanding of the uh, of the situation that we as believers find ourselves in, in light of our constant struggle with the cosmic system. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. All right, we're going to continue with our study in Genesis. And we're reviewing the first part of Genesis, which deals with uh, four events and then four people. And the four events are the creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. And the four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the theme of Genesis is blessing and cursing. And we see this to how God blessed the world after He created the world. And then, as a result of sin, there was a curse on the world, judgment because of the fall and the consequences from that sin penalty of spiritual death. And then, as we go through Genesis, there's... What's the matter? Oh. As we go through Genesis... Is that better? As we go through Genesis, we see that man is blessed again, and there's continuing deterioration, continuing decline. Uh, There's God's grace before the flood. God delivers a group out of the flood, the eight souls who survive on the ark. And then, once again, we see deterioration, decline. We've gone through our review, and now we are uh, back to that section in Genesis 10 and 11, that deals with the what's well, called the table of nations or what happened to the descendants of Noah after they got off the flood and having witnessed this incredible judgment, this cataclysmic catastrophe that dominated their lives for, I mean, in terms of the catastrophe itself, for a year. But they had spent decades prior to that preparing for this catastrophe. They've witnessed the fountains of the deep opening up and the windows of heaven bursting forth. They've witnessed all of the tremendous uh, storms that took place. Uh, Michael Oard, who's a meteorologist who does a lot of work with the Institute for Creation Research, has developed several meteorological models to uh, demonstrate what would have taken place during a flood of this type. And there would have, uh, a flood of this type would have spawned numerous super or mega hurricanes. Uh, we, we all have seen the damage that was done by um, Hurricane Charlie last week, which was a Class 4 hurricane. But these would have been more along the lines of a Class 15 or Class 20, if such a thing were to exist today. Uh, huge hurricanes that would have been perhaps a 1,000 miles uh, across. And here you have these eight souls who go through the flood and after the flood, you would think that, that having witnessed the power of God, having been present 
with Noah at when God confirms his covenant with Noah and establishes the Noahic covenant, sets the bow in the clouds, explains the significance of the rainbow, you would think that having witnessed the power of God and having all of this fantastic empirical evidence of God's power and greatness that the human race would get a fresh start and everyone would be obedient to the Lord and growing and advancing. But you have just the opposite. In other words, what, what God is demonstrating, once again, it's not environment. It's not even an intellectual issue. It's not a matter of evidence or a lack of evidence. It's a matter of the disposition of man's soul in terms of his, his uh, bent and inclination towards independence from God, uh, autonomy, self-law, self-rule, and his own arrogance. And this is really what is being demonstrated in Genesis 10 and 11. We went through the details. We exegeted the passage. We talked about all the different tribal groups, the uh, descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem, and where they went in the world. But what I want to focus on in terms of the review, which may or may not take one night, we may end up going further. I had a lot of material I was trying to collate today on the airplane coming back from Texas, and I don't know what's going on with my computer. We always have demons in the machinery around here, but every time I would type in about three lines of text, the computer would turn itself off. It did that about five times, so I uh, I didn't know what it was, if it was the hard drive crashing or what, so I decided to leave it off. It got home, turned it on, no problem, but we didn't get home in time for me to redo all my notes, so... Uh, I've got more than enough to cover tonight anyway. I want to start in Romans 1. So turn with me to Romans 1. In fact, I'm going to take a look here and see if by any chance I can pull up another slide presentation I recently did. Which has Romans 1 on it. Obviously not. Okay, Romans 1, 17. I think starting in Romans 1.17 in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul is al- almost gives us a historical perspective here on what happens has happened historically, and we see the dynamics of what is going on as, as a consequence of human depravity, starting in verse 18. There we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I just want to make a couple of notes as we go through this, uh, this passage. When Romans 1.18 talks about the wrath of God, this is not talking about God having some sort of temper tantrum because of something that man has done. This is dem- uh, the term wrath of God is a technical term for the outworking of the justice of God on rebellious uh, humanity. It is not a statement of his literally getting angry or having some sort of um, temper tantrum. He is simply uh, demonstrating his justice toward man because of their, uh, their rebelliousness. The wrath of God, the expression of His divine justice towards mankind, is revealed from heaven. That is the place of the throne of God. Heaven is the location of the supreme court of heaven. Even though God is omnipresent, which means He is equally present to every aspect of His creation at every moment in time. And He is transcendent, which means He is greater than all of everything in His creation. He is totally distinct from His creation. Even though He is all of that, His glory and His presence is in some sense concentrated or focused in one particular location known as the throne of God 
in the highest of the heavens because there has to be some sense, even if it is in an anthropomorphic sense of the presence of God, because on the throne of God, because if Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, in some sense there has to be a place where that is happening because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God in his humanity. And so there has to be some sort of place where there's a sort of a concentration of God's uh, essence. And this is the place of the Supreme Court of Heaven. And this is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then those men are defined as those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I believe this is an adjectival statement describing... Uh, men and giving content to the meaning of ungodliness and unrighteousness. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the word suppress in English sort of has this idea of holding something down. But the Greek word here is kot echo. And kot echo is spelled uh, K-A-T-E-C-H. Oh, looks like this in the Greek, kateko, and in the English. Now, this word does have that idea of holding something down, but it also has the idea of simply holding something. That's this word echo here. The verb echo means to have or to hold, to hold on to something. Kata, the uh, preposition that is prefixed to this word, making it a compound verb intensifies the meaning of the main verb. So it means to hold something, hold on to something. Sometimes it means to suppress something. But here I think it is talking about it's holding on to certain truths, and we'll lowercase that t, by means of. And this is a construction in the Greek we've run into many times. It is the Greek preposition in, en, plus the dative, which has the idea of instrumental means. He is this unrighteous, ungodly man, or mankind, in ungodliness and unrighteousness, is holding on to truth, lowercase true, by means of unrighteousness. You know, we've all run into this. You talk to somebody, and they believe in God. You start asking them what they mean by God, and it's not exactly your concept of God. See, they've taken something that is partially true, lowercase t, and they've redefined it. They have, they have done what... You see it happen on the news media all the time. You have an event, and you look at this event, it has certain objective realities, and then all of a sudden, certain politicians and news media types get a hold of it and start spinning it. And the next thing you know, it's not as bad as it seemed to be, or perhaps it's not as good as it seemed to be. But all of a sudden, they completely reinterpreted the event to mean something completely different from the way you originally understood it or the way you thought it to be. That's, that's, and we call that being a good spin doctor. Well, every human being is a spin doctor on God consciousness. And that's what's happening. They're taking truth that is evident to them in creation that God makes evident within us that's what's covered in the next two verses and they're holding this truth by means of unrighteousness see they're taking that truth and they're going to reshape it, recast it they're going to spin it so that man's not as bad as scripture says he is and God's not the creator that the Bible says he is we can hold on to a civil religion you know, this is why, in some sense, I don't really get all bent out of shape when we talk about having the phrase, one nation under God. Whose God are they talking about? Uh, when they take prayer out of the public schools and that Supreme Court decision that was made back in the early 60s had to do with a prayer that was written by the um, New York Public School District. I don't want them writing prayers for my kids to say. Whose prayer are we praying? Now, there's an underlying principle I understand that's very important in both of these cases. But when we say one nation under God, what God is it? Is that a Roman Catholic perception of God, a Buddhist perception of God, an Islamic perception of God? Which God is it? 
In other words, let's give some meaning to that. And we, you'll often hear people talk about, well, in America we have a sort of a civil religion. We have a historical basis in Judeo-Christianity, and we sort of adopted a, a civil form of religion. But the only thing that matters is a biblical concept of God and who God is. is are we talking about the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, the God who has condemned all humanity as fallen sinners and who in His grace has provided salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and paid uh, the price for our sins in His spiritual substitutionary atonement. Is that what we mean by God? So you see, what man tends to do is redefine God. And God either becomes part of creation, as we've seen. He gets confused. You have a breakdown in the creator-creature uh, creator distinction. And God becomes uh, minimized. He becomes part of the cosmos rather than uh, that unique, transcendent, infinite, personal God who is totally distinct from everything in creation. And we've studied that for several weeks uh, in terms of the, the distinction of, between the Creator and the creature as it's displayed in Scripture. So what we see in verse 18 is that the character of fallen man is that he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is a historical observation more than it is a, than I think that it is what we would call, what theologians might call a gnomic or characteristic truth. It is, Paul, I think, in this chapter reflects and this is the historical use of the heiress tense throughout this, this chapter, he's reflecting upon what happened historically in that post-flood civilization. They very quickly uh, kicked into gear their sin nature in terms of reinterpreting truth. You have these ancient myths that we've talked about, the Egyptian myths for creation, Babylonian myths, they can be traced back to almost the founding of those civilizations. And even though some of the later expressions of those myths that we know of by, uh, through archaeology may have been written as late as 1600, 1700 B.C., eight or seven or 800 years after the flood, they represent a very old tradition. This, this just didn't pop up. It had been around since, since uh, not long after the flood. And so... It didn't take long for the human race as a whole to rebel against God and to begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. Creator, And this is what Paul describes in the next few verses. He talks in verse 19 about the fact that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In fact, every individual knows that God exists. It is known in them for Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by every atheist around. They may not admit it anymore, but at one point it was clearly seen. That was their point of God consciousness. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The revelation and knowledge of God is so clear and so precise to every human being that, that reaches God consciousness that they, are, they have no excuse before the judgment of God, and they can't say, well, I needed more evidence that you existed. They can't get away with that. They know inside them, the Scripture says, it's evident within them. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So what happened historically is they knew God. They had the evidence from the flood. When they came off the ark and even the next two or three generations, they were still seeing the reverberations of the uh, flood in terms of both ge geology, earthquakes, uh, probably um, uh, volcanoes, also in, in the weather. There were tremendous reverberations in the weather as the meteorological patterns were shifting and you had the development of the ice ages. We have, and according to historical geology, several ice ages that take place over millions of years. Well, I think they're right. There were several ice ages, but they took place over a relatively short period of time, over a period of just 
maybe a hundred years. So if you have three or four years where you have global freezing and you have ice, ice, an ice pack that comes down into the middle of Western Europe, and then you have a warm-up for the next few years and there's a melt-off and then another cycle of, of cold, they were aware of what had happened. They were telling their, their children and grandchildren, and remember we looked at the, uh, the chart showing the lifespan of those men that, that Noah lived for another 500 years after the flood, Shem lived for another 500 years, uh, or Paxad lived for three or 400 years, and they saw their great 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 grandchildren uh, born, uh they saw their great great grandchildren die those subsequent generations didn't live as long so they saw their children their grandchildren their great grandchildren their great great grandchildren all die before those first 3 or 4 generations died and those men who were eyewitnesses to the flood were able to give testimony to what they saw to their Great, great, great grandchildren, and yet what they, those great, great, great grandchildren did was reject that testimony. They rebelled against God, and they tried to uh, redefine what had happened in terms of these various mythologies. And that's what the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11 is really all about. When we look at Genesis 10, it gives us a description of how the descendants of Noah scattered over the face of the earth. And then you come to Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and it gives us a description of the Tower of Babel and how the human race under the leadership of Nimrod sought to build this tower to heaven. They sought to make a name, a reputation for themselves. And there's an interesting sort of wordplay there as they seek to make a name for themselves. And the Hebrew word is Shem. They're seeking to make a reputation for themselves that's superior to God's reputation. And even today, if you are a Jew and you are reading the Bible and you come across the name of Yahweh, you would never mention, articulate the name of Yahweh. Sometimes they will read Adonai instead of of, um, uh, uh, Yahweh. But other times they will say Hashem. Ha is the article in Hebrew, the name. And they will simply refer to God as the name. So you see this this interesting wordplay there that's going on in Genesis that they sought to make a name for themselves. And what the writer's indicating is that they're seeking to set themselves over against God. They're worshiping their creator, the creature instead of the uh, creator. So all of this is part of that background. Now, in Romans 1, we're told that although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. In other words, there's no grace orientation and gratefulness for what God has done in destroying the antediluvian situation. And after the flood, antagonism toward God sets in with the arrogance of man's soul. They are now antagonistic to God because They're reinterpreting the flood as God making war against man. And so now we have to protect ourselves from God. And that's part of this idea of building the mountain, building the tower, is that somehow we will be able to protect ourselves from this uh, judgmental God who seeks to make war on us by destroying us by floodwaters. And that becomes the historical basis, even though... Uh, it gets lost over time, that becomes a historical basis throughout the ancient Near East of why they established their worship sites in high places. You, you read through the Old Testament that they set up idols in the high places. They would go to the highest point around, and they would set up a worship center. Why did they go to high places? Because they saw that as a place of refuge, from the judgment of God. You go travel through Greece and all of the ancient cities have an Acropolis, which is the highest point. That's where they built the temple, was on the highest point. And I think that uh, that is is a result of this uh, racial memory of the universal worldwide flood that destroyed everything. So rather than being grateful to God and worshiping God... 
They rebel against God, blame him for what happened in destroying the ancient civilization. Uh, Romans one twenty one says they became futile or empty in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This indicates that their thinking begins to be clouded. They can no longer think according to reality. And the result of this is not simply spiritual, which is Paul's point. He's talking about their spiritual uh, regression here. But I think it also impacts the knowledge that they had. The early, uh, the early survivors of the flood carried with them the knowledge the, of, of the antediluvian civilization and the technology of the antediluvian civilization, and they knew how to um, they had the metallurgy, the engineering, the mathematics, the algebra, the geometry, the trigonometry, all these things that were necessary to create such an engineering marvel as the ark, for one thing, and as the Tower of Babel for another thing. I mean, think about that. All that has to go into that kind of construction, and it took them probably a couple of years. This is extra-biblical information, but if you uh, look at the Babylonian account, it seems it, it talks there about the fact that it took them two years to build this tower. Now we can't, we don't know how accurate that is, but it's probably fairly true. It took them a long time to build this this huge tower that later becomes the basis for subsequent pyramids, ziggurats, things of that nature. The ziggurats we we know of were much later in time than 2300 B.C. But where did they get that idea? Where did they get this notion? Why is it that you have uh, people in Egypt building pyramids, people in Mesoamerica building pyramids, people in uh, Babylon building these ziggurats? Where did they all come up with this, this idea and this same architectural uh, structure, what goes on behind that. But they had to have a tremendous engineering ability, a tremendous science behind it because of the way they they aligned these temples. And they were all worship centers, and they had special temples at the top uh, for where the God could come down. And they were all perfectly aligned with uh, certain stars and certain astronomical features. So this shows that they're, they have tr- tremendous skills in math and architecture and engineering. They're not just a primitive people that are building these, uh, these pyramids. But as time went by, these skills were lost. Later generations, three or four hundred years down the line, could not reduplicate those building achievements, they didn't know how to do that. So that by the time uh, you get a, a 500 or 1,000 years away, they have lost many of, these, many of these skills. One thing I pointed out last time from the uh, maps of the ancient sea kings and the fact that we have maps of Antarctica that are perfect, they're, they're maps of the land mass underneath the ice cap. And, and these maps are perfect. Now, in order to have a perfect map, you not only have to have uh, tremendous uh, skills at cartography, but you also have to have, be able to determine the longitude, which meant that they had perfect timepieces. They they, you have to have a clock that's not going to be affected by humidity, weather, movement, or any of these other factors, and it's always going to keep perfect time in order to find the longitude. So this shows some of their skill. Well, this gets lost. Paul's comment is that, and this is a comment about anyone who is in, in spiritual darkness, professing to be wise. They may have a, a Ph.D. from Harvard and Cambridge. They may have written uh, various erudite books on mathematics or physics, but yet they are fools. They may have a high IQ and great education, but they have rejected the Creator God of the Bible. Verse 23, they have exchanged, literally not just changed, but exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And this is a picture of primitive idolatry. 
you have examples of this that have survived in time. You have the Sphinx in Egypt. You have various other uh, figures that were used in the uh, pagan worship of Egypt, various animals that are zoomorphic representations of the gods. And as time went by, those idols became uh, less concrete and more abstract until you have men worshiping ideas rather than concrete uh, images made of stone or wood. Then we see that as a result of this, there's a progression in time. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So God begins to do, do something. To, uh, uh, the more they want to rebel, the more God restrains the evil that they're able to do. And so there is a de- gradual deterioration among these Gentile nations in the ancient world. Verse 25, who ex- these, these men who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So we see a certain progression that is going to take place once you begin to worship the creature rather than the Creator. For this reason. For what reason? Because they're worshiping the creation Something in the creation. Once you do away with the God of the Bible, something moves into that vacuum. Once you take the God of the Bible out of your thinking, out of your soul, something else moves in. And the something else that dominates, that becomes God, is something in the creation. You're going to deify something in the creation. You're going to deify matter. You're going to deify energy. You're going to deify some element of philosophy. You're going to deify some abstract ideal like the uh, sumum bonum in uh, medieval theology, which is a reflection of the unmoved mover or the prime mover in ancient Greek philosophy. You're just taking an abstract ideal and deifying it. So Paul says that for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. What are vile passions? This is sexual lust. See, there's a connection here that Paul is showing between sexual depravity and spiritual rebellion. Rejection of God as a creator leads in a straight-line deterioration in terms of sexual perversion and sexual depravity. Now, you can go out and talk to any number of sociologists and psychologists today, and they would challenge that. But see, this is what the Scripture says. See, we've seen this. Once you get the influx of and rejection of the Creator in the mid-19th century, you see the deterioration of that, what, what is also happening at the same time. You see man moving further and further away from absolute standards in the realm of sexual morality and in the realm of understanding what is perversion and what is not perversion so that we end up 150 years later or so where we are uh, debating whether or not uh, you can have same-sex marriage. Nobody in the 1850s would have ever considered that a, a, a legitimate thought. That would have been condemned by almost one and all. But 150 years later, it is very acceptable because the, the premises of Darwinistic evolution, which has uh, infiltrated our society, where everybody grows up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They've deified something in the creation. It destroys your source of absolutes. Absolutes no longer come from an objective external source. They now come from something inside the system. Well, if it comes from inside the system, then this is something that, that man is going to determine on his own. And all this introduces us to the basic elements of what we have defined in past lessons as cosmic thinking. The Greek word for world is the word cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. And cosmos can refer to the world. It can refer to the earth. It can refer to a system Uh, Usually it has the idea of some sort of organized system. It may be anything from uh, used as a root for the word we get for cosmetics as a woman 
uses cosmetics to organize uh, her face. It can refer to a, any kind of organized system, uh, primarily in the Scripture. It's talking about an organized system of thought. And the word cosmos is used to refer to all of those thought systems that man develops that are hostile to God. So, as we've seen many times, on one side we have the divine viewpoint, which is the unified viewpoint of Scripture. The Bible expresses one and only one unified uh, concept. And over against this, man has developed his own viewpoint. So we have human viewpoint. But human viewpoint isn't monolithic. There's all kinds of, of human viewpoint. At least it looks that way on the surface. But when you boil them all down, they're all basically saying uh, the same thing. And other terms that we use for human viewpoint are uh, paganism. And paganism is a perfectly good, legitimate, technical term. It's not a pejorative term. And it refers to non-biblical thinking. Anyone who doesn't think according to the Bible is a pagan, according to Webster's Dictionary. Pagan is sometimes used in our society to refer to those who are uh, are practicing witches, some sort of extreme practice. That's not the meaning of the term. The term refers to that which is is um, non just basically non biblical thought. So we have uh, human viewpoint paganism. It's also demonism, demonic thought. Uh, demonic thought, according to James chapter three. Uh, 13 through 15, that this wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, demonic, and natural. And that natural is the word soulish. It's that which has affinity with the soulish person, that is the unbeliever, who does not have a human spirit, does not have any doctrine in the soul, is operating purely on a finite basis of understanding. So we, this is a way of thought that is promoted by man against God. So we have to ask the question, what are the basic elements of human viewpoint thought? And I have for years taught that there are two basic elements. And I'm beginning to add, on the basis of reflecting more and more on what's going on in Genesis 11 and back to Genesis 3, that maybe there's a third element in here. So I'm going to introduce it tonight as I begin to to think through the consequences of this. The first element is arrogance. And arrogance is man's assertion of his own authority, that man thinks he's somebody when he's nobody. In arrogance, we talk about the uh, basic arrogant skills. And arrogant skills are uh, self-absorption, where we're completely absorbed with ourselves. And then we give in to ourselves. So it's, uh, what's the second one? Self-absorption and then uh, self-indulgence. And we give in to our thinking. There's no uh, discipline there. We just go with the flow of our own lust patterns. And then there is uh, self-justification, uh, where we are justifying all of our basic uh, wants and needs and why we've done what we've done. And this leads eventually into self-deception. Now, we're, we're extremely, uh, we're divorced in an extreme way from reality. And we're just living in a false understanding of the world. And this leads to the fifth, which is self-deification. Self-deification. All that's part of arrogance. Okay, so we look at our first category characteristic of arrogance is human self-assertion against God. It is a man elevating himself over against the Creator God of the universe. It is a rebellion against the authority of God. So it is characterized by, we'll just put a minus up here, minus authority orientation. No authority orientation toward God. 
And of course, the more you rebel against the authority of God, the more there's going to be rebellion towards other elements of authorities that God has legitimately set up in, in, in the world. Just today I was sitting in the airport and there were some people who were having a conversation behind me at such a loud volume, couldn't help but overhear what they were saying. And this man was talking about problems he had instilling any level of discipline in his teenage son. It turns out, as conversation goes on, that he was divorced, and whatever he tried to do, his ex-wife would counter. And see, divorce has played havoc in trying to teach any level of authority orientation to, to many children. And they've lost that, and it just snowballs into greater and greater deterioration in, in the home. So under arrogance, you have self, uh, uh, self-assertion. There is a lack of authority orientation to God, and man replaces God as the ultimate determiner of, of value. So man now becomes the center of the universe. How do you know what's right and wrong? It is whatever society determines or whatever a subgroup of society determines. And this kind of thinking uh, is demonstrated today in sociology textbooks, in history textbooks, in uh, literature, so that if you're going off to school and you're majoring in any of these things, this is going to hit you left and right, and you better be prepared. And that's one re- In fact, today I got an email, received an email from someone who has been listening to tapes from here for some time and has been using that with one of their children. They have an older uh, child that wasn't around for some of this, and really he, that older one got blindsided when they went off to college, and that has really rocked them. But the younger child is doing a lot better, and the, just the look at the history textbook that was brought home at the beginning of school this semester, just one assault after another on divine viewpoint in just the first few pages. And see, parents, you have to train train your kids. And this person said, we are just so thankful for what? We didn't realize how much our kid was getting from listening to those Genesis tapes until we, uh, until just in the last couple of days, seeing her critique what was in this textbook. So that's, and they were very grateful for what I had done in, in the Genesis tapes, along with listening to Charlie Clough's framework tapes. Now, I know some of you are about to head off to school, any of you in high school or college, uh, some of you that aren't or are out and more interested in these things, need to be listening to some of Charlie's tapes. You can get those at cclough.com, and um, I would get order that framework series and encourage you to listen to those. It is a great series. Charlie developed that series years ago when he was a pastor of Lubbock Bible Church. And he was faced with a congregation of mostly university students, graduate students, undergraduate students, who were being assaulted day in and day out in the classroom. And let me tell you, your greatest assaults are not going to come in biology and geology. They're going to come in literature. They're going to come in psychology, in sociology, in educational psychology courses. They're going to be in, in leadership courses. The whole, whole concept of leadership today is based on sociology. So these are all subcategories. Business management courses are just uh, rely heavily on sociology, uh, a sociology framework. And you're going to wake up one day and realize that, that you no longer believe what you used to believe about Christianity and the Bible, and your parents are just a bunch of old fuddy-duddies, and they're not up with whatever's going on today, uh, whatever it is, simply because you, you have just been suckered through two or three years of this sort of subtle attack, where man replaces God as the ultimate determiner of values and of what, what's right and wrong. That's all part of arrogance. It's, it's worldliness. It's cosmic thinking. The next element that we see, and see, this is exemplified biblically in what happens when, when Eve looks at that fruit and decides to answer the serpent's question, Has God said? 
Has God said, well, let me see, is this right or wrong? See, immediately she's trying to put herself above God to evaluate the veracity of God's statement. See, once she did that, she is uh, asserting herself, she's replacing God as the source of value, and she's going to evaluate God's statement. That's arrogance when it slips in, and the natural result of that, almost immediate result, was she ate the fruit. Okay, now what happened? Adam ate the fruit. Then what happened? There's fear. Okay? There is a fear, not the fear of God in the sense of healthy respect, but there is a dread of God based on ultimate accountability and judgment. God came to walk in the garden and they were afraid. What happened? They, they ran and hid. And they tried to solve their problems with fig leaves. And now you're saying, well, wait a minute, I thought we were... We were we had gotten past our study of the fall, and we were up to the uh, up to the Tower of Babel. See, the same thing's happening at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is demonstrating that this modus operandi is continuing in the post-flood environment. What happens is that in arrogance, man is replacing God and worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. What happens? They become hostile to God. Because they are afraid. There is a fear and a dread that God can wipe us out again. God can judge us again. We just went through a horrible... You think those people down in, in uh, Florida right now are having some serious psychological problems? Fear, anxiety, dread because of what they just went through? I remember when I was in my first church in Lamar, Texas, uh, it was Hurricane Alicia in 1983. In fact, it was a... Uh, it was on a Monday that I decided that, I think it was a last-minute decision. Everything was fine and clear. There was a, wasn't even a tropical storm in the Gulf. And I hadn't seen my good friend Tommy Ice in a long time, and he was pastoring his first church up in Oklahoma City. And I jumped on a plane to fly up there on Monday morning, and I was going to fly back on Tuesday. And by the time I got back, there was a full-bore full hurricane coming up right up I-45 down in Texas. And I had never seen as much damage as it did in our community. Lamarck was the first uh, town on the mainland from coming up on Galveston County, coming in from, from Galveston. And it just tore the place up. And our church attendance reduced by 50% for the next six months. Because it did so much damage to homes and to trees. There were people who lived in a cul-de-sac at the end of a street with maybe five or six homes on each side. And there were, might be 12 or 15 trees lining up that street. And little tornadoes had gone down, just taken all those trees and they just crisscrossed the street. It took them, took them six weeks to chainsaw a way out of their, their street so they could drive out. And power was out for six weeks or eight weeks. And this creates real psychological trauma in people. And there's no doctrine to handle it. It wipes you out. And the physical stress alone is, is rugged. You know, imagine what's going on down in Florida right now with these people who are facing that same kind of disaster. Well, just, just multiply that exponentially in terms of what happened after the flood. So there's this fear and this dread of God that he can do this again. And so they're going to shake their fist at God and build this tower that somehow will protect them from God ever judging them. You say, well, that's silly. Well, you know, that's kind of what the writer of the Bible wants you to get. Is It's almost a satire against what was written in the Babylonian accounts of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the tower and of how these, because in the Babylonian accounts it was the Anunnaki, the gods, who came down and built the tower. And this was to show the greatness and the ascendancy of Babylon. And the writer of the Scripture sets this up in, a, in, a, in, in almost a fun way. You notice the first thing he does is he, instead, he, instead of coming to the point of the tower. Now when I say that, that the tower of Babel is the real point in Genesis 10 and 11, let's take a minute and look at the text. We went to Genesis 10. We saw the first five verses. Look at the descendants of Japheth, and then we're out of there. You know, Japheth disappears. He's enlarging his tents in the direction of northern Europe, and some go down with the Persians and Indo-Aryans down in uh, India. 
and but that's it, four verses. Then we have a lengthy discussion of what happened to the descendants of Ham. And right smack dab in the middle of that section on Ham, you have a diversion. And he and the writer starts to talk about Nimrod and how there's this mighty hunter uh, against God, Nimrod. There's this. It's not before the Lord in a positive sense, but he's he's shaking his fist in the face of God, and he is building his kingdom of Babel and Akkad and and these other uh, Shinar and these other in the plains of Shinar and these other other uh, communities, and he's building his own kingdom in opposition to God, and he's the real leader and power behind those who built the the uh, Tower of Babel. And then you finish out your, your, the, the second focus is on all the different Canaanite tribes who are inhabiting the land that Israel is going to get. Then we go to the descendants of Shem, and in the middle of the, sec- the descendants of Shem, there's a second diversion, and we learn about Peleg. And in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Well, that's talking about the same event that happens with Nimrod, and that is, we finally get to this event, in chapter 9, the Tower of Babel. But what the writer of, of Genesis is, is really doing is saying, look, first of all, he tells us about how all the descendants of the, from the ark are going to scatter all over the earth. Hundreds of thousands of people scattering all over the earth. And then he talks about this one little group in Babel who's going to build a tower against God. Now think about what's happened there. He has set it up in such a way as to say, here's this, all this scattering of all these tribes. How do you think this, this little tower is going to matter? And in the midst of his discussion of the tower, he says, and God saw what was going on, and God decides to come. Now, let's look at the verbiage there. God decides to look in on what's happening. Well, some people say, well, God's omniscience. He, he wouldn't have to look into it. Well, that's the point. God looks into it because he already knows what's going on. It presupposes his omniscience that he, he looks down and he says, but the Lord came down to see the city. Okay, what's the picture there? For the Lord to come down, you've got the Lord is big and immense and omnipresent. And he's coming down to look at this little bitty city. You know, they're, they're so proud of what they've accomplished in their big tower, but what the picture here is God has to come down and bend over with his microscope to see this big tower they're building. See, there's a, there's a there's tremendous sense of humor in the narrative of Genesis 10 and 11 to poke fun at what's really going on here in this, how silly it is for human beings to think that they can escape God, that they can build a tower that's so big that they can avoid the judgment of God. You see, we look at this and we say, well, why would they want to build a tower? That was, don't they know they can't build a tower that tall? Well, see what happens when you get into, as we saw in Romans 1, the dynamic is they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is what sin does. It makes you think you can somehow escape God and through this process of carnality and rejection of God, you're reducing God to a, to Something that man uh, man can control. So this is a second dynamic in, in cosmic thinking: is fear and dread of God, which becomes the underlying motivation to try to escape God. And what happens when there's this fear and this dread of something? Well, this promotes a hostility towards that which threatens you. When something really threatens you. You, there's a tendency to get angry about it eventually and to hate the source of that oppression. And this is exactly what happens in terms of the third characteristic of cosmic thinking. There's arrogance. There's a fear and a dread of God that underlies everything of accountability. I think this is one of the reasons why you so, see so many people on the left getting so mad and angry about our president's, the fact that he has a Christian witness. He hardly says anything about it. I, I mean, compared to the things that uh, Jimmy Cotta said uh, 25 years ago, he wore his Southern Baptist uh, religion on his shirt sleeve. And he was always talking about it. 
And um, but you don't see that with our current president, and yet people react with him as if they're, he's trying to shove his fundamentalism down our throat. He goes to a Methodist church, folks. This guy is not a typical fundamentalist. Uh, he does ha- believe in absolutes, though, and this is what happens. You have somebody who believes in God, believes in absolutes, and what is it going to do? It is going to generate antagonism and hatred in an inordinate degree because of this fear and dread of accountability. And that's all part of what's, what happens. So in a, there is, as part of w- the world system, an antagonism towards God to try to destroy the works of God. There's a hatred of doctrine, a hatred of truth, and a hatred of Christianity. These are the three elements that you see in Christianity, just go into a secular classroom and try to present a case for scientific creationism. You will be laughed at, ridiculed. Uh, there will be a tremendous level of antagonism. But if a, if a Mormon came in and tried to present their view of American history, where there's, you know, that's the interesting thing. You know, Brigham Young University has the largest archaeology department in the world. And the reason it does is because they're trying to prove the claims of Mormonism that uh, there were these these various tribes uh, here on on the Western Hemisphere and that Jesus appeared to them and gave them the gospel back after the ascension. And, of course, they've never found anything to, to validate any of those claims at all. So uh, you get a Mormon who would come in and start... And, and present a paper trying to demonstrate some sort of scientific validity to their views, they wouldn't generate nearly the hostility, or especially if they were a Muslim. There wouldn't be any hostility whatsoever. They would be embraced. Isn't that wonderful? You see, the hostility and it is generated because of the fear and dread of judgment directed to a Creator God that they know exists. It's evident within them. And so the world system produces this antagonism and hatred and anger toward God. Now, all of this has its historical source. The whole cosmic system has its historical source at the Tower of Babel. This is the prototype for the development of the cosmic system. And we'll get to that next time to go through and see how... The, the characteristics of the cosmic system and cosmic thinking grow out of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. As I pointed out in the past, as I've gone through this, each of these elements teach some key doctrines. This is where they, 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 they begin in the Old Testament. With the creation, you have an understanding of God. He is the creator God who's distinct from all of his creation. We understand who man is. That he's created in the image and likeness of God. He's not just some accident that happened in a pool of slime and all of a sudden life appeared. You have nature. Nature has a certain value and significance because God created all the nature and the animals to provide a perfect environment over which man was to rule. But then the fall comes along. That's the second event. The fall informs us of how all this got screwed up, how man's relationship to God was was destroyed by sin, a man is spiritually dead, and the consequences of man's spiritual death wrecked the environment. And how God is going to ultimately uh, change all of this and redeem nature and redeem man through His grace, and that starts with what Christ did on the cross and doesn't complete until the end of the millennial kingdom when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The third event was the flood. The flood pictures many uh, doctrines related to salvation, that there is only one way and it's God's way. It emphasizes exclusivity. It emphasizes God's grace. The first time we see the mention of the word grace is in association with the flood. And then God establishes a new covenant with man. And after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel. And what the Tower of Babel is teaching is the development of, of the cosmic system. And one of the things that we should note and end with uh, tonight is that at the end of this narrative in Genesis 11:9, which ends the Toledot, remember this is the Toledot or the generations or what happened to the descendants of, of, um, 
uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it ends at 11.9. 11.10 starts, this is what happens to the descendants of, J- of, uh, of Shem. So this section ends with judgment. It ends on a note of hopelessness. It ends on a note of despair. Everything else that's happened has not, hasn't done that. You always have hope. You have, you know, God provides clothing. God put a mark on Cain to protect him. God provided an ark. God gave a new covenant to Noah. But there's no note of hope at the end of, of the Tower of Babel episode. It leaves us hanging. And this is exactly what the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to do. Where is the hope? And this is our introduction to Abraham because the hope for mankind now is going to be what God does through Abraham and the seed of Abraham. And it is through the seed of Abraham that redemption will come. It's through the seed of Abraham that the curse will be reversed. And it is through the seed of Abraham that there will... There will be the establishment of the perfect environment of the millennial kingdom. The curses roll back and eventually the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. But the Tower of Babel gives us a foreshadowing of what man does throughout history under the guise of the city of man in conflict with the rule of God in history. So we'll come back and see the dynamics of cosmic thinking from Babylon next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how these, these trends go throughout history. Uh, they are given to us at the beginning of history in Genesis, and we see their development throughout history. And all these different themes and doctrines uh, weave together. They depend upon each other. They relate to one another uh, to give us a full and accurate understanding of of human history, of your grace, and of what you are doing in history. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things and help us to understand them, to give a greater understanding and interpretation of what goes on around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.